Every week at Taproot, we read the Bible out loud as an act of worship and devotion to God, the divine author of the Bible. Today, I'll be reading from the book of Colossians, chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. After the reading of uh, the word, I will proclaim, this is the word of the Lord, and I would invite you to respond prayerfully, speak, Lord, your servants here. Please stand with me for the reading of the word. Colossians 3, 1 through 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This is the word of the Lord. Please take your seats. Hey, church, good morning. It's good to, buenos dias. It is good to see you. It is good to be back. I spent the last week or so in Mexico with my family, and uh, it, was, it was a good time, but man, I, I, um, this is home, so I, I love being with you guys, and it is good to be back. So uh, for those of you who may not know me, my name is Luis, and I am one of the pastors here, and uh, if this is your first time here at Taproot, Welcome. Welcome to our church. We are so glad that you are here with us. Um, On the back of uh, the chair in front of you, there is a little uh, welcome card, a little uh, connect card. If this is your first time here, would you take a few moments to to fill that out? And then before you leave, drop that off at the welcome bus in the foyer. There's no way you can miss that, okay? So drop that off there, and uh, we have a small gift to give you, just a, a small way for us to say to you, welcome to Taproot. We are so glad that you are here. Uh, a couple things just to kind of keep in mind. Um, today we are, uh, it's going to be our last sermon uh, in Colossians for the year, okay? The next two weeks we're going to do a super small Christmas series, and the Sunday before Christmas uh, we're going to have our uh, Taproot Kids uh, uh, presentation song thing. Listen, it's awesome. So even if it was terrible, it's awesome. So uh, the team is working really hard at it, and they're going to do a great job. We love our kids. So uh, if you, uh, whatever you do, don't miss that Sunday. It's going to be great. Also, after uh, that gathering, the Sunday before Christmas, we're going to have like a Christmas celebration with cookies and hot cocoa, like a big, super cool hot cocoa bar. So, uh, you know, it's good times. And also mark your calendars for our Christmas Eve service, uh, obviously the night before Christmas. So uh, 6 to 7, I believe. So it's going to be a good night as well. So anyway, it's good to be here. If you've got your Bibles, uh, uh, open them up to the book of Colossians, chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 1 through 4. And uh, if my English is a bit wonky this morning, I've been speaking lots of Spanish lately. So if you're like, what is he saying? Just somebody flag me down. Okay, and, and I'll, 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 I'll give it another go. Okay, if you don't have a Bible, we've got some Bibles in the back. Uh, if you don't have one, if you don't own one, we would love to give you one as a gift. They are yours to keep, so uh, take them. Take them home. Okay, um, let me set up the verses we're going to look at today, and then I'll tell you a story. Okay, the verses we're going to look at today, uh, verses 1 through 4 of chapter 3, are really a, a transitional text. Okay, these four verses are, are really connecting the, the front of the book of Colossians to the back of the book of Colossians. And this is really very, very Pauline. Whenever you read a letter or a book that Paul wrote, he is going to, first, he's going to pound the gospel. He's going to make 
uh, Jesus really big, and then he's going to move into application, and then he's going to move into practice. And so in our text this morning, that's exactly what Paul is doing. He is, he is moving now. We've been in this sermon series for 12 weeks. That's, is that really three months? Wow. Three months in this series. So for 12 weeks, we've looked at great detail and length at the person and the work of Jesus. And now Paul is going to begin to, to transition. And it is unbelievably important that we all see this. The transition is in verse 1 of chapter 3 when Paul says this, If you have been raised with Christ. Now stop there for a second and ask yourself this question. Is Paul talking to everybody right now? And the answer would be no. So the first part of the book, Paul is saying this. This is who Jesus is. This is his nature. This is his character. This is Jesus as deity. This is Jesus as reconciler. This is Jesus as preeminent. This is Jesus who is better than any human philosophy or tradition. So is this lesson, this expose of who Jesus is. And now he moves on and he says, if you have been raised with Christ. So what Paul is saying is this. Those of you who have been converted... Those of you who have believed and trusted in Jesus, those of you who have been made alive by Christ, those of you who would call yourselves followers of Jesus, disciples of Jesus, students, apprentices of Jesus, then this is how you should live. This is how the gospel should affect you and me personally and practically. And it is important that you get this little nuance. Because if you miss that Paul is talking to those who are Christians, to those who are saved, then you might believe that what he teaches in the rest of the book is what justifies you, is what saves you. Doing all the things is what makes you right with God, and you would be wrong. So please hear me say this. There is this tension, and it causes a great deal of damage in the life of those who call themselves Christians. When they believe that their moral action will somehow make them right with God. That in cleaning up their lives, they will somehow earn favor with God. And Paul will warn us about that very thing. But he is saying, if you've been raised with Christ, if you are a Christian, if you are a disciple, then live this way. Meaning, Jesus brings about transformed lives. It is God alone who justifies who makes us right before him in Christ. You've got nothing to offer that in the end will make right what we have wronged. So now that you and I have been justified, now that you and I have been saved, there will be a transformation. Paul will tell us in our verses that the first thing we ought to do is we got to set our sights. we got to set our, our minds on the things that are above. And he does not leave it as as this ethereal kind of guesswork on what our eyes should be set on. He's going to be clear. He's going to say, turn your face, turn your eyes above where Jesus is, seated at the right hand of God. And so the goal, the pursuit, what we are after is Jesus, to know him, 
to walk with him, to have him shape us, to have him chisel away at us, to have him reveal in us, to have him create in us a joy of salvation given to us by him despite us. And that's why Paul took all that time to unpack who Jesus is in the first two chapters. And now he moves. Let me tell you a story. Most of you know that I um, lived in a little metropolis in Oregon called Roseburg for six years. It's actually tiny, okay? And Roseburg is not diverse at all. I was the diversity in Roseburg, okay? (laughs) And... uh, I'm serious. And, uh, you know, Seattle is incredibly, incredibly diverse, and I love it. I, it seems like the world came to this area, and it's so cool. I, I love that, that my children go to school, and there are kids from all kind of different countries. I love that I, I can get to go to all the tiendas and the panaderias and the taquerias and all the ias that you can keep on thinking, and uh, it's cool. I love it. I love that I get to just meet people and ask their names and speak my native tongue. I love that I get to hear, you know, different music and eat, you know, just, just walk through 152nd Street, and you can eat food from all over the world, and it's, it's beautiful. I love that my kids play, in, uh, uh, play sports in teams that are, that are uh, p- full of kids from all over the world in different countries. I, I love that my neighborhood, our neighborhood, is incredibly diverse. I love learning about different cultures. You know, culture is the, the beliefs, the customs, the art, the languages, the food of a particular society, community, group, place, or time. I, I love the diversity here. We, we pray for opportunities to, to engage the culture around us with the life of Jesus with the gospel, in word and deed. But there is a reality. And the reality is that oftentimes we can experience culture shock. Is that true? Now, a a dude like me coming, you know, I am Latino, I am Mexican. Coming into Seattle, there is a thing such as the Seattle freeze. Okay? And I've lived in America a long time. And so I've been Americanized to some degree. But it's weird. This individualistic, there, there is a shock. I had to warn my kids as we went to Mexico, listen, you're going to meet people that don't know you. And they will come, and they will hug you, and they will kiss you. And it's going to be okay. Okay? Like, like they're, not, they're not being weird. They will do that because it is warm down in Mexico. So I had to prep them, you know? There is this culture shock. Literally, uh, one thing that happened this week is I realized how much of a, a weakling I am because I, I went to Mexico and I'm like, I can't drive here anymore. <laughs> I, I lived there for 19 years of my life and I just can't drive there anymore. It's crazy. You think Seattle drivers are crazy? You have not been to Mexico City. It's, it's wild. When you can roll down your window, touch the truck next to you, it's, it's bad news. Okay, uh, it's, it's shocking. I get in the car and I just grab onto the seat because I'm like, you know, I, just, I can't look. It's awful. It's, it's, it's shocking to me. Now, it was so bad this time around that I, wanting to be a good husband, said, babe, do you want to go on a date night? And she said, absolutely. And then I thought, oh, no. How will we get to the date night, you know? And so I literally had to ask my mother, my mother, mom. Would you hook it up and give us a ride to the, to the restaurant? It was so embarrassing. And uh, 
But, but there is this culture shock thing going on. I've, I've been so far removed for so long, even though it is, it is my blood, and even though I grew up there, but now I go, and it's, it's just, it's shocking. It's, it's different. And now I tell you that embarrassing story to tell you this, that I think that sometimes this happens when we become disciples of Jesus. There is, in a sense, a, a culture shock. We, we have been apart and we've been living in the kingdom of this earth. All of a sudden we are granted entrance into the kingdom of God and things are different. It's like the veil in your eyes has finally been torn off and you can finally see for the first time in your lives. And there is now this new way of looking at life, at looking at people, at looking at this world because of Jesus. And that is exactly what we're going to see here in Colossians. As followers of Jesus who have been given new life by him, we're going to see the world in a different way. We are now part of a new kingdom, of a new culture. We belong to a new king, and everything changes. So let's look at our text. Colossians 3, 1 through 4. Okay, so how does the gospel transform us? What is the first thing Paul will say? How does the gospel transform us practically? The first thing Paul will say is that it's going to change our mind. It's going to change our thoughts, our worldview, the filter through which we see everything, how we see others, how we see work, how we see relationships, how we see friendships and marriage and sex and money and recreation. It will change. And not only that, but Paul is going to show us how this happens. So here is the command. Verse 1, if then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. So, if you are a Christian, if you call yourself a a follower of Jesus, an apprentice of Jesus, here's the command. You are to see everything in a different way. You are to seek and to set your mind on the king and his kingdom, which are above rather than this earthly kingdom. We are to live kingdom of heaven down and not this earthly kingdom up. Our focus is to be Jesus in his kingdom, his ways, so that we can be agents of bringing him, the king, and his kingdom to this earthly K kingdom for gospel transformation. That's the command. That's what we ought to do. Now, here is the question. Why? Why should we do this? Why? Here is the why. The short answer is this, the gospel. That's the answer, the gospel. Paul begins here in Colossians by reminding them that those who have placed their faith in Jesus have died and have been raised with him. Romans 6, in Romans 6, Paul says that we have been united with Jesus. Our relationship with Jesus is like no other. And so because of the gospel, because of Jesus' life, because of Jesus' death, because of Jesus' resurrection, we have been raised with him. Verse 1 of Colossians 3. Since mastery over us and its authority over us is destroyed. That is really good news. A new man is alive in us. Because of the gospel, verse 3, we have died. We have died to sin's mastery and control. We have died to live in for ourselves. We've died to the self-sufficient spirit of the world. 
Because of the gospel, our life is hidden with Christ in God. Because of the gospel, verse 4, our life will continue. This world is not the end. Our life does not end here. There is a great hope in a future for those of us who call ourselves Christians. So why should we set, why should we obey the command to set our minds to seek the things that are above because of the gospel? Do you see the gospel in these verses? Justification is revealed when Paul says, We have been raised and we've died. Glorification is revealed when Paul says, When Christ, who is our life, appears, we will be revealed with him in glory. And sanctification is the transformation that is happening. So Paul is using the gospel as the motivating influence behind seeking the things that are above. So we must recognize that the purpose, the motivation, the reason we are to seek and to set our mind on the things that are above is the gospel. We who were vile enemies of God, sinners in the hands of an angry God, have been raised to life in Christ from the clutches of sin and death. And this glorious gospel is to be the the motivator behind our seeking and our setting our mind on the things that are above. And whatever it all means theologically, it is clear that there is this deep intimacy and union here. Do you sense that? And as the church is called the bride of Christ, we should think about this, we should think of this union as a marriage. Our relationship is not with this mystical force, it is with a person. Now, I've been married to my wife, Amanda, for almost 13 years. So we are almost teenagers. Our limbs are still a little awkward, you know, but we're doing okay. And in those almost 13 years, I've learned a ton about Amanda because I want to know her as a person. And I'm surprised every year with something new about her that I learn as our hearts grow closer together. And I think she would also say the same about me. Some things are beautiful. Some things are shocking. Some things are dark. But all are part of knowing her more intimately. Intimacy is intriguing. Intimacy is a bit unpredictable. Intimacy is powerful. And the more I get to know her, the more I understand how she responds, how she thinks, what she loves, what she hates, her her dreams, what what she hopes for, what she wants from me, what she doesn't want from me. And after almost 13 years, we can communicate with with looks, with with tones, with with secret words. We've We've got secret jokes. And I know what she thinks or feels. I've become a student of her because I find joy in her person. I delight in her. It's been... Almost 13 years, and it's been a great 13 years. But the truth of the matter is that a lot of marriages haven't had that past the first 13 days. There's no intimacy. There's no curiosity. There's no pursuit, no exploration of the heart. Only getting through each day 
hoping not to do something stupid. The relationship is taken for granted. They assume they know all there is to know. Or worse, we are relationally apathetic. And that is a tragedy. My prayer is that that would not happen in our relationship with Jesus, in that parallel. So this is, this is the why. Why should we seek Jesus and the things of Jesus which are above? Why should we set our minds on Jesus and the things of Jesus that are above? Because you have been united to him. There's great intimacy there. We've been united to Jesus, and that should affect us, how we think, how we see everything, and how we live. Now, Paul moves from the why, which is the gospel, to the how. Paul tells the Colossian Christians, Paul tells you and me, those that have been united to Christ, that we must seek the things above where Christ is. You should underline that word in your Bible that, is, that says seek. This word seek is, is this intentional act of the will to pursue something. In this case, someone. It doesn't just happen. Seek means to, to search out a matter by thinking, by meditating, and reasoning, to, to strive after. The verb there is in the present active imperative, which means that it is a continual thing. It is an ongoing seeking and striving after the things that are above. Seeking means searching. It means exploring. It means investigating, not necessarily in hopes of discovering treasure that might be there, but in fact, to obtain the treasure that is there, to know the heart of God in Christ. That kind of seeking describes someone who is content, but not complacent. Someone who desires to know more, to find more, to understand more, that I and you might enjoy him more. But let's be honest. Some of us are united to Christ, but we don't love him anymore. We prayed some prayer. We, we, we put a prayer. A ring on our finger, and then we, we assumed that our work was done. And when the, when the honeymoon thrill passed, and the distractions and the difficulty of life overwhelm us, we looked over at Jesus and we thought, who are you? We've got no intimacy with Jesus because we've spent zero time getting to know him. And suddenly, a lot of the other sutures start looking really good. Religion and lust, human philosophy, individualism and pleasure and power. I would say that we need to be captivated again. That there ought to be renewal and awakening in our hearts again. Now let me give you some practical things. For everyone, myself included, the how the how. How do we seek these things above, motivated by the gospel? The how will involve Scripture. That is, that is a, not a very new thought. 
It's going to involve Scripture. How do you set your mind on the things that are above, the king and his kingdom? You can guess about God. You can create your own God. You, or, or you can humble yourself before how God chose to reveal himself to us, which is the Scriptures. So it involves Scriptures. It's going to involve prayer. It will involve prayer for the Spirit of God to be at work in us, to, to teach us, to, to lead us, to help us, to guide us. It's going to involve rest or Sabbath. Is, is that not incredibly countercultural? It's going to involve days where you and me stop trying to earn something. There have to be days where you just are, where you don't do, where you just be and rest in His grace and in His care. There have to be days where you press pause. So Scripture, prayer, rest. How do we seek the things above? These are practical things. Scripture, prayer, rest. I think it's going to involve meditation. This is the idea about setting the mind. You've got to meditate. You've got to dwell on the truths of Scripture. And I'll tell you why this is important. Because we don't, we don't read the glorious truths of Scripture like we read the newspaper. It's not a race to see who gets to the end first. You, you chew on it. You think on it. You read it slowly. You, you, you apply it. You let it rub off on you. It's not just reading it. Just reading it, it's not going to hold some magical silver bullet power for our lives. We do it slowly, we, we digest it, we apply it, we submit to God in it. So there is going to be meditation involved. And there is community involved in, in the how do we set and seek the things that are above to set our, our mind on the things that are above and to seek those things, we got to walk with others who are interested in doing the same. So that the conversation frequently comes back to the who God is, what He has done, how He is, and what He is doing in your life. Listen, I, I am a church man. I love the church. The church of Jesus is not perfect. Uh, the church of Jesus has done a lot of really stupid things, but the church of Jesus is beautiful. Now, I would encourage you. It is my responsibility to, to, uh, to encourage you to not forsake the gathering of the saints. Hebrews tells me to do that. I encourage you. We need each other as we try to seek and set our minds and pursue the things that are above. Now, I'm not saying that you don't ever can miss church. Not, that's not what I'm saying. So don't hear that, okay? I'm not weird about that stuff. But if, if that is the regular habit of our lives, we should probably rethink that stuff, okay? 
So the how, how do we seek, how do we set our minds on the things that are above, motivated by the gospel, is scripture, it's prayer, it's, it's rest, it's, it's community, it's, it's meditation. Those are just simple, historic, spiritual disciplines of, of the church of Jesus. Those have always been there, they will always be there, and it just works itself out. And let me give you some freedom here. It's going to look different for everyone. The worst thing you could do is assume that what works for the guy next to you is going to work for you. It's going to look different. But these ingredients will be there. It's just going to be a little different than the person next to you. Don't fall into that comparison game. Okay, now two questions that might be helpful for you in the how do we seek the things that are above? How do we set our minds, our hearts on those things? Two questions. One is this, what stirs your affections for Jesus? What stirs your heart that you might want to love him more and know him more and follow him and worship him? For some, it's music. Is that true? For some, it's art. For some, it's, it's, it's a hobby that you enjoy. But what stirs your heart towards love for Christ? Whatever that is, pursue those things. And the, and the flip side is also true. Now, what robs your heart of affection for Jesus? Now, might, whatever that is might not be this intrinsically evil thing, you know? But if, it, if, but if it's robbing your heart from affection for Jesus then you should reevaluate giving yourself to those things, seeking those things, setting your mind on those things. Does that make sense? Listen, this is the how, and you will fail at this. I will fail at this. Hopefully, less and less as I follow Jesus more. Hopefully, less and less as Jesus transforms my life. Okay? Now, Paul says, why should we seek and set our minds on pursuing the things above? Paul has given us the why. Now he says what? What are we seeking? What are we setting our minds on? What are we pursuing? That's a great question. What are, what are we doing here, right? What are we, what are we seeking here? And Paul will tell us, tell, us, will tell us what we are to focus on. What are those things above? Verse 1, seek the things that are above where Jesus is, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. I believe this is the passion of Paul. I believe this is the primary thing we are to seek, Jesus. May God open our eyes to see that Christ is the joy of the things above. May we seek him, treasure him, set our affections on him. We are to be overjoyed in him. We are to see him as the pearl of great price. We are to look at him, not sermons, not books, although those things are good, not what other people say about him, but what he says about himself. So what are we seeking? We're seeking Jesus. And what are we beholding about Jesus exactly? When we behold him, you are beholding. You are looking at everything that we are meant to be. According to Genesis chapter 1, men and women were created in God's image. 
And according to Isaiah 43, we were created to bring glory to God. We were uniquely designed to represent and reveal God's nature, character, wisdom, and beauty in how we lived. But we sinned. We rejected God's word. We rebelled against his rightful rule. We blew through the boundary. We missed God's mark. And we fell short of God's glory. And the fall shattered the image of God within us. Now, the image did not disappear. It is just deformed. And any reflection of the image of God fell short of his glory. We, we no longer accurately represent him. We could no longer be with him. And we didn't want to be. We love our sin. We find new ways to sin. We encourage others to sin. But in our sin, God loved us. And Jesus, the Son of God, our Creator, entered into creation and took on earthly human flesh. And for 30 years, Jesus fully and flawlessly reflected the image of God that Adam should have reflected. Scripture calls him the second Adam, perfectly reflecting the glory of the Father and showing us a picture of sinless humanness. In him, we see what God intended all human beings to be in the relationship with God, to self, to one another, and to creation. Here is where this is amazing. We are not beholding the one who simply set this good moral example, who gave us good moral advice. We are setting our eyes. We are seeking the one who through faith takes my sinfulness and gives me my righteousness and empowers me to live and be like him. He is not infinitely lovely. He is infinitely loving. Because of Jesus, I stand before God right now, innocent, forgiven, approved, defended, holy, and blameless. As I behold Jesus, as I study him, as I look at him from every angle, fighting to rest in his grace, my love for him grows. My life is transformed. And I see his loveliness and his love more and more. So we seek him. We set our minds on him. Who the Bible tells me he is and what the Bible tells me he did. So when I feel weak, I know that he is strong in me. I know some of your stories. And I know that some of you are going through difficult times. So rest in that. He is strong right now in you. When you feel accused... Anybody felt accused this week? He says that you're innocent. When you feel ashamed. Anybody gave in to shame this week? He has declared you forgiven. When you are fearful. Anybody give in to anxiety and fear this week? He says that you are victorious. Things are going to be okay. So Paul says that it's not enough to seek Jesus. Yes, do that. Pursue him. But you set your mind on him. The truths that you find, we must meditate on them and center our lives daily on them. And it's not enough to celebrate the beauty of your bride once a year, once a month, or even once a week. It is not enough to do this once every now and then. The gospel of Jesus, who he is, what he has done, should saturate our thinking, 
captivate our affections, and we must behold his loveliness and his beauty and his love constantly. Many might argue and say this to me. Hey, Luis, dude, I think about Jesus all the time. Well, would your life look any different if you stopped setting your mind on Jesus? A relationship with Jesus is supposed to be one of concentration, not convenience. Of joyful devotion, not reluctant duty. We are to organize our lives in order to know Jesus and to make him known, not fit him somehow into our lives. In every situation, out of response to the gospel and his grace, we are to concern ourselves with Jesus, what he thinks, what he likes, what he wants, what he does, what, he, what, it, what is right, what is wrong. So the first thing we seek is him. But I think there is also a second thing we are to seek and set our minds on. And that is the kingdom of God. His rule. His ways. His reign. The kingdom is also what is above. The king is above and the kingdom is also above. And as we set and seek our, set our minds and seek him in those things, we are to give ourselves to the mission of bringing him, the king, and his kingdom that is above to this earth below. Our prayer is, may your kingdom come to Burien, to the South End, to White Center, to West Seattle, to Normandy Park, to, to Des Moines. We, we pray those things. We pray for our church that we might be an embassy of heaven, an outpost of heaven. We are to seek a heavenly approach to living on earth. You can see this in verse 2. Paul says, set your minds on the things that are above. And then he uses a contrast by saying, not on the things on earth that are below. So I think Paul is saying to us that we have to have this heavenly, this kingdomly approach to living on earth. I believe that, that Paul wants us to live heavenly, kingdomly, while we are sojourning this earth. We must consider what is pleasing to the king. We must consider what the fully realized kingdom will be like and how we can be bridges of bringing that to the here and now. We must consider what we need to put off and what we ought to put on. We must consider how we can redeem the time. We must consider how we can bring his rule, his reign, his ways here to our schools, to our jobs, to our families, wherever we go, to the gym, to the construction site. So we seek him and we seek the kingdom. Now, quick plug. I'm almost done. I was listening to a podcast called This Cultural Moment. If you've not listened to it, you should. It's really good. And they gave this really interesting insight that I just want to briefly share with you. Now, they were speaking of Jesus' teaching about the narrow way. Anybody ever read that scripture? The narrow way. And these guys were pushing back on the traditional reading of that text. The more fundamental view of that text. That, that text is about a few people going to heaven and everybody else is going to hell. And they were saying that actually the idea of a narrow way, the kingdom way, is that there is this very specific path 
that you follow to get to life. It is less about who's in and who's out and more about there being a very specific way to live as disciples, as students, as apprentices of Jesus. It is narrow, meaning it's specific. It's not just the broad way to do whatever you want, be true to yourself, follow your desires, you do you type of mentality. It is a specific, narrow way to live that leads to life, and the end result is life in the kingdom. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, is a map for all disciples of Jesus of what that specific way is. A way of forgiveness. A way of peace. A way of being a non-anxious presence. A way that is not lustful. A way that is not angry. A way of justice. A way of mercy. A way of reconciliation. A way of empowering one another. A way of life together in community. A way of generosity. So Jesus saves. And then there is a very specific, narrow way to flourish. This is opposite to the secular culture we live in. So Paul is saying we are to seek this heavenly, specific, narrow approach to live on the earth as disciples of Jesus, as people who have been saved and transformed by Christ. We are to live kingdom of heaven down, not this earthly kingdom up. We are to seek and to set our minds on the king and his kingdom and be agents of bringing and bridging that to earth. That's what we seek. That's what we seek. Now let's finish with this thought. We are easily and naturally captivated by the things of earth. C.S. Lewis said that we are far too easily pleased. Some things are important. Our faith, religion, family, work, friendships. Other things are more trivial. Social media, sports. But what happens is, since we are far too easily pleased, we end up seeking these things. We devote our time, our energy, and our resources to them. Then we, we set our minds on these things. We think about them. We, we fantasize about them. We talk about them constantly. And it's not that all these things are evil, but it's that we find them lovelier and even more loving than Jesus in his kingdom. So I'm not saying don't do those things before you throw tomatoes at me. What I am saying is don't find in those things things that are more lovely and loving than Christ. Don't do that. In our overstimulated culture, this is a battle. Can somebody relate to that? It's like we are Doug, the dog in the movie Up, who loves his master until he's distracted by all the squirrels running by. Who knows the line? Squirrel! We're like that. We have, to, we have to seek the cleansing and renewal of God's word, his truth. Empowered by the spirit, and, and we meditate and we rest on those truths surrounded by community. Romans 12 says, do not be conformed to this world. Don't let this world mold you like a piece of clay. 
but be transformed by renewing your mind. So seek and set your mind, your sights on the things that are above. Renewal, awakening comes from immersing yourself in the truth of God's word. Led by the Spirit, resting in His grace, meditating on what He said, surrounded by community, not, not to check a box, not to get a brownie point or a gold star, but to know Him as we are taught and led by the Spirit. Do not expect renewal, awakening, and transformation by ignoring Him in those practices. And here's my conclusion. Paul concludes by reminding us that we have left our single life behind because we've been united to Jesus. We are not to live as bachelors or bachelorettes. Verses 3 and 4. Verses 3 and 4 say this, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Jesus in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, there you will also appear with him in glory. So we must all come to the con- conviction, to the conclusion that our old life is gone, that our old desires, that our old hopes, that our old ways are gone. And this is a good thing because God has rewritten our stories. We have, we have a new history, a new trajectory, a new identity. Your path no longer defines you. Our weaknesses no longer govern us, and our future no longer scares us. The completed story of your life in all its perfected, restored glory lies hidden in Jesus. Peter calls it an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And though not fully revealed, Jesus is our life now. We don't just let go and let God. There is work to seek and to set. And as we begin delighting in the loveliness and in the love of Jesus in his kingdom more than anything else, glimpses of that restored image of God that resides in our hearts can be seen. You, we, the world around us, co-workers, friends, begin to see that really Christ is your life. That his spirit resides and lives and dwells in your heart. And we become ambassadors, representatives of the kingdom, agents of the kingdom for kingdom transformation. As we declare, as we display the gospel, bringing the king and his kingdom everywhere, every day. So we are to seek and set our minds because of the gospel empowered by Jesus. It involves scripture. It involves prayer. It involves community. It involves rest. It involves meditation. We are seeking him in his ways. And may we do this for his glory, the advancement of the gospel, and the good of other people. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Lord, I pray today that we would not fall into the trap of just doing things and, 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 and checking things off the box or, or wanting to earn a gold star. But what I pray that happens today 
is that everybody who's here, whether they would call themselves students, disciples, apprentices of Jesus or not, that they, today that they would see Jesus as incredibly lovely and loving. That they would see the beauty of Jesus and that the gospel would transform us. And that because of that transformation, that we would seek and set our minds and our sights on you and your kingdom. And may you use us as agents of grace to be bridges to bring your kingdom to Burien, to West Seattle, to Kent, Renton, to Aquila. Help us, Lord. Help us to, to bring your rule, your reign, your ways to make culture, to engage others with you, the king, and with your life through our lives. May we rest in you. May we seek and see your beauty daily, personally, Lord. May we not fall into the comparison game, Lord. And may this happen for your glory, for your good, and for the gospel to advance. In Jesus' name.